Good evening, everyone. <laughs> On behalf of Pratt CEO Carla Hayden, I'm Rosalind Cena, Director of Communications of the Pratt Library. Welcome to the Central Library tonight. We are very pleased to have all of you here tonight for the latest installment of our Talking About Race lecture series. Now, this is all made possible with our wonderful partners, the Open Society Institute Baltimore. It's hard to believe that it's been almost a year since we launched this incredible lecture series. It's definitely been a huge success, and we look forward to future partnerships with OSI. Now, we kicked off this series last summer. I was just chatting uh, with Sherilyn Eiffel about this, and back then it was packed house, and people are still pouring in, and we're looking forward to seeing more people here tonight. Sherilyn was with her cousin, Gwen Eiffel, and um, this lecture series started off on a good start, and it definitely hit a nerve and got a lot of attention. It was followed up with more dynamic speakers and conversations with the likes of national NAACP President Ben Jealous, with law professor Gerald Torres, and Spelman College President Beverly Daniel Tatum with former Philadelphia School Superintendent David Hornbeck. Now, this lecture series has created a, a dialogue in the city of Baltimore, and it definitely shows the importance of tackling issues connected to race. Now, this lecture series has opened up, um, as I mentioned, a dialogue here in Baltimore, and we're hoping it will continue beyond the library. Tonight, we are much honored to have two special guests to guide us through another memorable conversation, law professors Brian Stevenson and Renee Hutchins. To introduce our special guest tonight is the director of the Open Society Institute Baltimore. Please welcome back to the Central Library, Ms. Diana Morris. Well, thank you, Roswell. I'm delighted to welcome everyone here to this evening, and thank you again for joining us. Um, as Roswell said, this is the uh, eighth event in a year-long series of talking about race that the Open Society Institute has been very proud to host along with the Enoch Pratt Library. It has been just a terrific partner for us. Throughout the course of this year, we've addressed a number of questions that are closely related to the work of the Open Society Institute in Baltimore. Our work focuses on three of the biggest challenges facing our city, tackling drug addiction, curtailing the overuse of incarceration, and connecting our children to school and on the road to success. Uh, the issue of race is actually one that we touch upon every day as we work to assure opportunity and justice especially for those in our community who live in poverty uh, and who historically and currently experience discrimination. So before we begin the program, though, I do want to thank some of the people who have invested in this work and made this series possible. Uh, those include the Maryland uh, Humanities Council, Robin and Jimmy Wood, Calvin and Lydia Baker, Vernon Reed, Sandy Rosenberg, and Hassan and uh, Amy Murphy. Their support has been very, very helpful to us. Um, one thing I also want to do, which is a little unusual, is to dedicate the forum tonight to one of OSI Baltimore's board members, Clinton Bamberger, who is here with us tonight. If there's anyone in the room who doesn't know Clinton, he is the father of legal services in this country. He has encouraged and started clinical education, not just here in this country, but in many places around the world. And he has personally mentored probably everyone. Uh, you know, in, in every single country, there's probably someone who's been touched by Clinton directly. 
And so uh, we're just very happy that he is, had made a full recovery and that he's here. He's an incredibly valuable board member to OSI Baltimore. We feel so pleased and proud to be uh, working with him side by side. So to the session tonight, which touches on many of the issues that Clinton has worked on during his lifetime, we will have a wonderful discussion with the speakers um, whom uh, Roswell has mentioned. And after the moderated discussion, we will take questions from all of you. So I hope you've all received a question card when you came in the room. Uh, we will pick them up uh, from time to time, so if you have them, you can just pass them to the end of the, co of the aisle, and we will um, get some of those questions at least answered tonight. So now I'd like to introduce our speakers. Uh, we will have a wonderful moderator tonight, Angela Davis, who's a professor of law at American University, Washington, American University College of Law. And Angela has also been a visiting professor at George Washington University Law School and has served as adjunct faculty at George Washington, Georgetown, and Harvard Law Schools. She's the author of Arbitrary Justice, The Power of the American Prosecutor. She's the co-editor of Trial Stories and the co-author of the fourth edition of Basic Criminal Procedure. And of course, I left the uh, best to last. She was also awarded a Soros Senior Justice Fellowship in 2004. That's a national fellowship program that OSI sponsors. And she used it to write a book about how prosecutorial power and discretion have perpetuated many of the inequities and flaws in our criminal justice system. Um, now, turning to one of our speakers tonight, Brian Stevenson. He is the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. Also, commuting, is a professor of law at New York University uh, School of Law. He also, and again, I'm happy to say, is on the National U.S. Program Board of the Open Society Institute. Now, as many of you know, um, he is very well known for his representation of poor people and death row prisoners in the Deep South, and this has won him a lot of very well-deserved national recognition. Uh, his, he and his staff have been successful in overturning dozens of capital murder cases and death sentences where poor people have been unconstitutionally convicted or sentenced. Last November, Brian argued in front of the Supreme Court on behalf of juveniles who have been charged and tried as adults. In the cases of Sullivan versus Florida and Graham versus Florida, he asked the court to consider whether it is constitutional to sentence a, life, a child to a life in prison without parole, including a child as young as 13. Uh, in that case, uh, which, uh, whose decision should come out any day now, a child was sentenced to life without parole for an offense that did not involve killing another person. And in the case of Graham versus Florida, a 17-year-old was sentenced to life without parole after violating his probation after an earlier conviction for armed burglary and attempted robbery. And then, at that point, he had only been 16. Um, Brian speaks about a broad range of issues, and in fact, he recently uh, uh, discussed the Dr. Martin Luther King's vision of economic justice on the Bill Moyers Journal. And during that show, he talked about the devastating consequences of the war on drugs. Um, one thing that, uh, one quote that I just want to pull out from that session, and I'm sure you'll hear more about this, um, is something that Brian said on, on that particular show. Right now, he said, for black men in the United States, there's a 32% chance you're going to jail or prison. In poor communities and minority communities, urban communities, 
I would say, like Baltimore, rural and rural communities, it could be 60 or 70 percent. The heartbreaking thing for me, and when I work in communities like that, is I see kids who are 13 or 14 who believe, who expect that they're going to go to prison. Uh, Brian is a graduate of Harvard Law School and Harvard School of uh, Government. Um, I think we're going to really benefit from his vast experience and his thoughtfulness. Uh, we also are going to enjoy hearing Renee Hutchins, who's a professor at the University of Maryland uh, Law School, and she's also a researcher and a writer. Uh, she has uh, sought to provide analysis and thoughtful commentary on questions uh, that really have practical relevance to the field of criminal procedure. She served as a federal prosecutor with the Tax Division of the United States Department of Justice. She's been a special assistant uh, to the U.S. Attorney in the District of Columbia and a criminal defense attorney with the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta and for the Office of the Appellate Defender in New York City. Renee has um, a law degree from Yale Law School and has a bachelor's in mathematics from Spelman College. So we have a vast array of experience tonight, and we're really pleased that you're all here uh, to be part of this discussion. Thank you. Thanks so much. Good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm delighted to be here to moderate this conversation between these two magnificent lawyers, law professors, lawyer activists who are not only teaching and writing about these issues, but who are out here every day doing the work. And so I'm sure we're going to be enlightened this evening. I want to start out with just a few breathtaking facts about our criminal justice system. More than 60% of the people in prison are now racial and ethnic minorities. For black males in their 20s, one in every eight is in prison or jail on any given day. And today, about three-fourths of all persons in prison are there for drug offense. About three-fourths of all persons in prison for drug offenses are people of color. Uh, recent data by the Department of Justice projects that if current trends continue, one in every three black males born today will go to prison in his lifetime, as will one of every six Latino males. Uh, these are breathtaking, breathtaking uh, statistics. So I wanted to start out by saying, you know, here we are in 2010, and in many ways we would say that there's been a tremendous amount of progress made around racial issues. Um, if you look around the country, you see that uh, people of color, African Americans and Latinos, are in positions of power at every level of state and local and federal government. We've got black mayors, governors, a black president of the United States. We've had black governors. Uh, we have legislators, a tremendous number of legislators uh, who are African American and Latinos across the country. Uh, and in the criminal justice system itself, we've got black judges, black and Latino judges, and defense attorneys and prosecutors. Perhaps we need more prosecutors in position of power that are people of color. So with all these black and brown folks in charge of this criminal justice system, how did we get where we are today in what Michelle Alexander in her latest book calls a, a Jim Crow situation where it looks like it's just as bad now, or if not worse, than it was in the days of Jim Crow? How did, how did this happen? Brian, you want to start with that? Well, I, I think it's important, uh, two things, um, to contextualize it. That is, in 1972, uh, there were 200,000 people in jails and prisons 
Uh, today, there are 2.3 million. That dramatic increase in the numbers of people being sent to jails and prisons wasn't really the decision-making of police and lawyers and prosecutors. It was legislators. It was elected officials who really uh, took the unrest of the 1960s and the discomfort of some of the reforms of the civil rights movement and turned it into this new message of now you should be afraid. Uh, with all of this equality, with all of this activism, with all of these civil rights, you can no longer segregate yourselves, you can no longer separate yourselves, and that's going to make you fearful. And you should be afraid because crime and criminality is going to overtake us. And this politics of fear and this politics of anger quickly turned crime and criminality into the new code words for how we deal with a lot of the social issues that we've been struggling with in the 1950s and 60s. And so that was a deliberate strategy uh, by policymakers. George Wallace uh, was the first one to bring it to national politics when he ran for president. Uh, it was embraced by Ronald Reagan. The war on drugs uh, was a war that was created uh, to kind of capitalize on these fears and anxieties. And so I, I think that that reality is what shapes the modern criminal justice system in mass incarceration. And you can put blue people in some of these prisons and some of these streets, they are not going to have the power to affect those results. And so I don't think we can expect too much from increased representation from minorities at that level when we're dealing with something much more structural and systemic. Wait a minute, but didn't some black folks vote for that war on drugs? Well, there were people of color who voted for that war on drugs because they assumed that when we were going to have a war on drugs, we were going to apply the, we were going to fight the war on drugs against everybody. Mm -hmm. They didn't assume we were going to go just into the poor sections of Baltimore mm -hmm. and Harlem and Washington, D.C. and only arrest those folks. I mean, the data on the war on drugs, it's astonishing. About uh, 11, 13 percent of the people in this country that are in Ill illegally in possession of marijuana and simple drugs are African-American. Uh, but about 35 percent of the people who are arrested are black. 55 percent of the people who are convicted are black. And, you know, 70% of the people are actually sent to prison. So at every level, people of color are failing. And so that's a different kind of war. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's not really the kind of war that people embrace. But I also want to comment on uh, this diversity question because, and this is, you know, I love Baltimore, I love D.C., I love, but I sometimes think uh, you can get a skewed picture of the diversity of our system. Mm -hmm. uh, I live in Alabama. There are no black people on the appellate courts of Alabama. 98% uh, of the district attorneys in Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Arkansas, and Alabama, and Mississippi are white. Uh, there are no people of color on the Court of Appeals in, this, in the intermediate courts. Uh, less than 2% of the trial judges are African-American. And these are states that collectively have minority population, African-American populations, 29, 30%. And so there is a tremendous disparity in the diversity, in the percentage of people of color in these communities and the diversity. And that absence of diversity is absolutely relevant to these problems that we're talking about. So, but Renee, you're here in go. Baltimore yeah, and you, you, you do have, have some black judges and legislators and all of that, right? You and prosecutors. do, but for example, the Court of Special Appeals, it's 2010, and the Court of Special Appeals is only just now poised to seat its first African-American woman. Um, um, and that hasn't even happened yet. Um, and the stats that you're talking about, Brian, are worse here in Maryland. And so 
um, blacks in Maryland make up about 28% of the population. We are 68% of arrest for drug crimes. We are 90% of the people incarcerated for drug crimes. Nine in 10 of the people incarcerated for drug crimes in Maryland are African American. Um, and that is not because African Americans are more dominant users of drugs or more dominant sellers of drugs. The stats suggest that, in fact, among you know 18 to 29-year-olds, um, whites are outstripping people of color in terms of their use and abuse of drugs, but that's not translating over into criminal justice policies that bear any rational relationship to the criminal conduct itself. Oh. And I, I, I mean, to me, that this part of the picture is the part that is the most compelling part for why there should be some immediate reaction. That right. is, you know, it just becomes unacceptable uh-huh. for uh, people of color, African Americans in the state of Maryland to be 28% of the users, but 90% of the people going right. to prison. And we can stop it because, you know, we don't actually have to put people in prison right. for simple marijuana possession. That's not something that we need to do for public safety purposes. Right. We're doing that for something else, symbolism uh-huh. and all of that. Uh-huh. And when the symbol is, is that we put young men of color in prison and we don't uh, put other people who are similarly violating the law, it's very disturbing. You know, in the death penalty context, we've had these kinds of disparities. And it's what it's led me to think that the death penalty is not really a question about who deserves to die for the kind of crimes they right. commit. I think the question has become which states deserve to kill when they tolerate the kind of racial bias and inequality and and access Uh to lawyers? And I think the same question, it can Uh be raised in the drug context. Uh, Does Maryland deserve to have laws that imprison people for 10, 12, 20, 30 years for simple possession when they're applying them in such a shamelessly racially biased manner? I think that question is a question that we haven't asked enough, but I think it's relevant. Well, let me me jump in here because you all have raised two interesting issues that I want to that I want to push you on a little bit. One of them, Brian, you seem to suggest, you seem to suggest have this radical idea. You have a radical idea that it sounds like what you're saying was that this was an intentional plan. Is that what I heard you say? No, I don't think it's an intentional plan. But uh, when you said George, while well, you said that it was oh, no, the, no question. Oh yes, in the 1960s, a, there's no question that George back then absolutely right. George Wallace was absolutely uh, substituting the word criminal for colored. Okay, that was a political strategy. Absolutely, and it's not the first time that strategy has been employed. At, at the turn of the century, we did the same thing with convict leasing mm-hmm. uh, when we turned former <laughs> slaves into criminals that could be incarcerated to build the steel mills and the railroads. And this line between ethnicity and race and criminality has always been there. The rhetoric of slavery was we have to enslave this this population of inferior people because they are brutes and they will terrorize and there's this capacity for destruction and violence that we have to tame. And that rhetoric is part of the legacy of the subordination of of African Americans and many many people of color. And so it wasn't a really creative thing to do Mm -hmm. to suggest to people that there'll be fear. I mean, look at all of the lynchings and the way in which the death penalty and rape, you know, uh, between 1930 and 1972, 87% of the people executed for the crime of rape were black men convicted of raping white women because that excited this fear and this anxiety. And so George Wallace just capitalized on that. But what about now? So fast forward, right? And so you've got in the United States Congress and in a variety of state legislatures, 
you've got African Americans, Latinos, who certainly would say to you, look, I don't want to put black folks down. I don't want a Jim Crow situation in the criminal justice system. But they're passing these laws. And you, you mentioned that you know those that pass the laws assume they were going to be enforced equitably. But a lot of the folks enforcing the laws, right, are what, what, what role, don't they play a role in all this? The, I mean, that's where it comes from, right? The prosecutors, the police officers, the ones who are making the charging decisions, the ones who are making the arrest decisions, the charging, to, that, that end up with those startling statistics you mentioned about how it's just this small percentage using, but it ends up being 70% in prison. That's because of all these decision makers, isn't it, in our criminal justice system, some of whom are African-American and not just white folks who would say, listen, I'm not, this is not racist. We're trying to clean up these communities, and black folks want us to do that. They're saying, you know, we're sick of these drugs in our community. Lock them up. Get these folks out of my community. So what would you say, what would you say to them if they responded in that way? What difference does it make if the policies are driven by racial animus? if we know that the impact of the policies results in racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not we can put a pin in the point um, where some legislator said, I'm doing this because I want to punish black people, what difference does it make? If what we can tell is that now the impact of those policies is having disastrous effects on urban communities, Mm And if the results of those policies were highly foreseeable. But so it, does, the, it matters the, to the court, the Supreme Court. Well, but, but, but I think that there are two questions. I mean, you asked, is it intentional now? Well, mm-hmm. if I tell you that we have a system where we only enforce the laws with regard to marijuana possession against black people, we don't write it in the law, right. but we're only going to arrest African Americans in Baltimore who are illegally in possession of marijuana. If we find anybody else illegally in possession, we're not going to enforce that law. And and in effect, if that's what we are doing, and we don't then don't do anything about it that's corrective, mm-hmm. it, it is an intentional decision to not fix it. Mm-hmm. We've had this crack cocaine disparity that everybody in the world knows about. Everybody in the world. We've ta- it's been documented. The Sentencing Commission has been talking about it since President Clinton. Uh, this disparity, you're getting a sentence at 100 times the rate. Uh, for pow- for uh, crack cocaine for, versus powder uh, cocaine. And we've done nothing about it for 20 years. And now there's supposed to be this big celebration because there's a recommendation that we're going to reduce the disparity from 100 to 1 to 18 to yeah. 1, which means you're going to be sentenced 18 times as harshly if you're a person of color with crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. It Even beca- though there's no pharmacological difference none. between the two. Absolutely not. Yeah. And so then it becomes what I call deliberate indifference. And in my view, the difference between deliberate indifference and intentionality is meaningless. Uh, If you see every person of color being beaten up and thrown away uh, and do nothing about it, Martin Luther King used to say, you know, it's not the bigotry, it's not the racial animus animus and the hostility that worries me when I think about a, a just society in America. It's the apathy. It's the indifference of well-intentioned, good-hearted people who look the other way. Because I go into these communities and I talk to these young kids, bright kids just like me. Uh, you know, kids who I see, they're just like people, I, I see them just like, like I saw myself. Kids who've got so much talent, so much opportunity, I mean, so much possibility, and they look at me and they say, Mr. Stevenson, don't talk to me about staying in school. Mm-hmm. Don't talk to me about uh, trying to do this. I know I'm going to end up in jail and prison. 
and because I, I see everybody else going, and I don't want to go, but I know it's going to come. So I got to go out here and get my while I can. And it takes so much to persuade that young child that that's not going to happen. And so when I see that, it becomes impossible uh, to not respond to that if I am committed to dealing with these problems of equality. And so, you know, I, I don't see all of these people of color. My view is that the Congressional Black Caucus would eliminate the disparities between uh, crack and powder cocaine if they had that authority. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is that, you know, in political systems, uh, the politics of crime are very difficult to get past. Nobody is out there campaigning in the political context about reducing the prison population. We've gone from 200,000 to 2 million in this time period. Who's out there saying we should reduce the prison population in half in the next five years? Let's get back to 1972 levels of incarceration. No one's going to say that because you don't get rewarded uh, for that kind of advocacy. And so I do think we do need courts. That was where you ended well, up. Well, I wanted to ask you, what are we, well, the courts help us? I mean, if you got a Supreme Court that's saying, unless you can prove that the police officer intended to stop and profile you because of your race, I mean, I, I love you all's analysis that it doesn't matter. And you're right, Renee, it doesn't matter if the effect is the same. We, we can all agree with that, right? But but is a court going to hear that? I mean, in the context of profiling, they've said you got to show, you got to show intentional. If the police officer didn't say, I intend to arrest you because you're black. Or if the prosecutor, right, from McCleskey to, um, what's the other case, uh, the Armstrong, says, you know, unless the prosecutor intended to prosecute you because you were black. I mean, even if they did intend to, I mean, lucky trying to prove that, although most of us would say probably it may not be intentional, it might be some unconscious bias going on there, but the court doesn't care about that. So you say, you say we're not out of luck in the courts? Well, I mean, the courts have not done what they need to do, but, uh, you know, I guess uh, that was true in the 1930s and 40s when we were talking about education. Uh, it was true in the 1950s and 60s when we were talking about individual rights. You know, I think the McCleskey is the Plessy versus Ferguson of our generation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we ultimately overcame Plessy. You're so In the context of education. Well, I have to be. Yes. Because if I you become hopeless, that. there's no place to go. But, yes, I do expect mm-hmm. courts to intervene. And it's most, mostly because, look, I live in Alabama. Uh, so you have to be hopeful. Well, no. <laughs> you have to be. You need an institution that's going to protect the rights of disfavored people. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I, you know, I don't have any illusions that something radical happening in America. In the state of Alabama, uh, we have a state constitution that prohibits black and white kids from going to school together. In 2004, 2004, there was an effort to get that language, that segregation language, out of the state constitution. Can't do that until you have a statewide referendum. We had a statewide referendum. And the majority of people in Alabama voted to keep the language in the Constitution. Okay? Uh, So I'm not uh, sort of romantic and sentimental and naive about these political realities. But the point is, is that in a country governed by the rule of law, if we're serious about equal justice, then you have to protect the disfavored people. You have to protect the minority. You have to protect the people who are hated, the people who don't have a lot of political power. And that's the argument that I rely on. And when the court looks the other way, you have to keep saying, no, you're wrong. So I'm saying to the U.S. Supreme Court, McCluskey is wrong. Mm -hmm. Armstrong is wrong. Mm -hmm. We've gotten some things right. Uh, The the court did a little bit better in bats in the case about jury bias. But there's so much more to be done. But it's a fight. 
You know, it's not it's, it's not a play where you mm-hmm. just sit and watch. It's a fight. And I'm glad you both are, are in that fight. Renee, you wanted to say um, something, and I, I want to ask you something. I'm actually well. a little bit more hopeful about the possibility for a fix in the political arena. Um, and it, a, a little bit more hopeful, not much. Um, but it is because our policies with regard to incarceration are so radically out of whack with crime rates or um, fiscal realities, we cannot afford to incarcerate people at the rate that we are incarcerating them. And and politics make strange bedfellows. Mm-hmm. And I think for very practical reasons, we are going to see substantial pushback against the politics of fear simply because we cannot afford to do what we're doing anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're seeing some of that easing um, in states where you know, 8, 9, 10% of the budget is being spent on public safety and corrections, and we're seeing drastic cuts in education spending. Um, you know, it's, that's, that's what's happening here in Maryland. At the same time that we are spending millions of dollars building new prisons, we are cutting budgets to primary and secondary education and higher education. Um, and and at, at some point when people realize that 50% of the population in Maryland's prisons are nonviolent offenders, we are not talking about scary murderers and dangerous rapists and spooky people that the politicians can scare us with. We are talking about nonviolent offenders. 42% of those in Maryland are drug offenders, simple drug offenses. Um, that we are wasting tax dollars incarcerating these people. So, it's, and you, you partially answered the next question I was going to put to you and to both of you is, can we talk a little bit about some of the consequences beyond just the unfair, unjust, you know, taking the liberty away from human beings for a very long time for families, for African-American community for this for society at large. You mentioned, you know, yeah. dollars I, being taken away from education. Can we just at least, I know we don't have time to talk about all of them, but can we talk about the effects of that on on others? Yeah, I am. Um, okay, I'm going to tell a really short story. Oh, I was telling please. a really, really short story. Um, I, I was telling Angela when we came in, I don't know if this panel came at the right time or the wrong time. Um, I, I was, I have, I represent um, folks um, in the state who are incarcerated um, and it, with the post-conviction and collateral challenges to their convictions. And I was out at MCI Hagerstown um, all day on Friday visiting a client. And I hate prison visits. I absolutely hate prison visits. And that wouldn't be such a troubling admission if all my clients were not incarcerated. It's <laughs> <laughs> a problem. It's <laughs> a problem. Um, But the reason that I hate prison visits is because the human cost of our criminal justice policies are most readily apparent to me in the visiting rooms of prisons. Um, And so I was out at Hagerstown. Hagerstown always has this long list of rules, which can and cannot do. Don't wear spandex. Don't wear mini, whatever. It's always long. It's always changing. Um, Don't wear spandex is a good rule for the nation. That that is true. just in prison. But anyway, I'm sorry. But they had added a new one. Um, um, And the new one was all children 
uh, all children must remain in their seats mm. or on the lap of the adult that they are with or the visit will be terminated. Oh, my goodness. And I was sitting in the visiting room waiting for them to bring my client up. And if you have not been out to our correctional facilities to visit, it's typically, you know, a row of plastic lawn chairs on this side and a row of plastic lawn chairs on that side. And there's a painted line down the middle that delineates the physical contact between the two rows. And there was a little girl. She was probably three or four. She was with her mother, and they were visiting who I assumed was the father at the visit. And she didn't want to sit down because she was three or four. And you could see the stress on the face of the mother because the COs were walking around the visiting room and they kept telling her very unpleasantly. Correctional she has to sit officers. Down. Correctional officers. The little girl had to sit down. She wasn't being disruptive. She just didn't want to sit down. She was kind of walking around behind the chairs and in front of the chairs. And as I watched this, it for me was such a stark reminder that that's who's paying for our policies. Right? It's the kids. It's the kids whose relationships with their parents are being negotiated by state employees. And it's the kids who have increased rates of their own incarceration if they're exposed to adults who are incarcerated and who suffer the collateral consequences of their parents who can no longer live in public housing or who are stripped of the right to food stamps or who are stripped of job opportunities. So it, it is not just the generation of people we are incarcerating that are paying for this. It is their kids and their kids' kids. And to me, that is the reason that we have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that this reality of what, it, what it's like to grow up going to the prison yep. uh, every month or every week. Uh, and, you know, we talk about 2.3 million people in jails and prisons today, but that means 10 to 15 million right. other people who are the siblings and children and spouses and parents of people in prison who are all having this kind of acculturation mm-hmm. that breeds frustration and anger. When mom leaves the prison, right. she's frustrated and she feels disconnected from the community right. and society that she lives in mm-hmm. because they are doing this to her and her child. And all of those uh, dynamics uh, create the kind of angst and anger and marginalization that I think then contributes to the despair and the drug use and the violence. But there are other collateral consequences, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are things like the right to vote. Right. Uh, so in my state of Alabama, you permanently lose the right to vote as a result of a criminal conviction. Right now, today in Alabama, 34% of all black men have permanently mm-hmm. lost the right to vote. And the projection is, is that by the year 2016, we could actually be looking at a level of disenfranchisement among African-American men that rivals the level of disenfranchisement at the time of the passage of the Voting Rights Act mm. in the 1960s and the stunning silence mm-hmm. that uh, you know, goes with this. And so you talk about elected officials and all of these other things. Well, the ability of African-Americans to get elected is slowly being undermined mm-hmm. by the growing disenfranchisement of these communities, not because they've done something violent and destructive, but because they've done the same things that young white kids do and other people do. They use drugs. They experiment. Mm-hmm. And that kind of a dynamic is very, very powerful. Other expenses, the cost one, mm-hmm. I don't think can be overstated. Right. There are states where you spend $45,000 a year to keep one person yep. in prison, $45,000 a year. You know, there are teachers out here, there are counselors out here, there are people who work with folks. What could you do with 
$15,000 a year uh, with a fifth grader or a sixth grader just to help them make it, just to help them cope with these problems. What could we do with $20,000 a year on each child in Baltimore, separate from their education and their housing, just to kind of make them make it? Uh, We could change this community overnight and spend half of what we will spend to incarcerate these kids. And that's a question of will and commitment. And the refusal to do it becomes the conversation that we have to have. Why don't we do that? Why is it so acceptable to spend 45000 a year on a 19-year-old to keep him in prison, but not spend half of that on a 10-year-old to keep him out of prison? And that question is very much related to who we care about, who we don't care about, who we've given up on, and who we haven't given up on, which brings us back to race, because we are so quick to give up on people of color. It breaks my heart. We're so quick to give up on poor people. Uh, We presume all of these terrible things. We're so hopeless about what they can be and what they can do. I thank God nobody gave up on me when I came into the world. Because, you know, it would have been just as easy to say it's just another young person. But but some folks get it, though, when it's it's white folks. So just an example. So you you may have heard of the Duke lacrosse case, perhaps. You've heard of that. Where, you know, prosecutorial misconduct, but by no means, as I'm sure you both know, by no means the worst ever. There have been people who've been on death row and, you know, minutes short of being executed as a result of prosecutorial misconduct, much worse. We don't know who those prosecutors are, but we know who Mike Nifong is. And some people would suggest, wow, people really got it when it happened to some wealthy young white folks. So this, this reminded me of back when, when I was out sort of fighting years ago, this fight about crack and powder cocaine, which we're still fighting, where there, were, there was a contingent of folks who said, you know what, let's make it, let's ratchet it up. Let's make, the, let's make everybody, the, the, the folks that are using you know, powder. And of course, that was before people understood that white folks were using the crack too, and the statistics <laughs> hadn't come out on that. But the idea there was, if, you know, if white folks were getting locked up too, they'd get it and all the laws would then be reduced and then, you know, because they don't seem to understand the inhumanity of it, some of these lawmakers, unless it happens to people who look like them with whom they can empathize. And I was one of the people who said, no, we don't want to lock up. That's not, you know, that's not fair. A lot of all the people and everybody's locked up, that's not fair. But there are people who are now coming back saying, see, if we've done that by now, you know, the laws would have changed. So I, I'm putting that out there just to move to the next s- topic, which is let's talk about some solutions because we're getting close to the time when I know some of these folks want to ask some questions. You know, what are some practical things? I mean, <coughs> Renee, you mentioned that you were hopeful on the political front. Brian, you, meant, you pointed out, however, that given that one of the collateral consequences is disenfranchisement, hmm, I mean, can we really be hopeful on the political front when a lot of us can't vote? So is it on the political front? Is it on the legal front? Is it in organizing? Is it somewhere else outside of the courts and outside of the court? I mean, do you guys have some ideas about how we can sort of practically start to attack some of these Um, problems? I I think that we are starting to see some examples of how things can be fixed. So in some states like Iowa and Wisconsin, and I think in Connecticut as well, Um, They are suggesting that any changes to criminal laws that come through the legislature have to have an ethnic racial Mm -hmm. impact statement, Mm -hmm. much in in the same way that we have fiscal impact statements that attach to all proposed legislation, um, so that people become more conscious. Getting back to the question of whether it's deliberate, Mm -hmm. people become more conscious, even if it's not deliberate, of the impact of policies that we adopt. Um, and, and so that is a hopeful 
mm-hmm. statistic, if, the, if those sorts of trends can expand. Um, there was a study just put out by Mark Maurer's group. Um, the sentencing fund. Yes. Um, that suggested that actually racial imbalances in state institutions were at the margin starting, starting to, to correct shift. themselves, mm-hmm. were starting to shift. And so as people became more conscious of, of the impact of our policies, that we were starting to see movement toward correction of those policies. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think there are concrete things that we can do. And, and I think, as Renee said earlier, there, there, there's definitely got to be some retreat from the strategy of just locking everybody up mm-hmm. because it is so expensive. You know, when Governor Schwarkin is giving his state of the state right. address and his biggest applause line is when he talks about how we're spending more on, on putting sending people to prison than keeping them in schools, it speaks to a real transformative mm-hmm. um, uh, transformation in that political uh, life uh, because that was not the line mm-hmm. four years ago. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that there is some promise there. But I also think that there are opportunities uh, at all of these levels. I think there are going to be political opportunities. Uh, I think there are going to be opportunities with the courts. Frankly, we're not pushing very hard in the courts. Uh, I mean, you know, we're about to put out a report about racial bias in jury selection. It's an interesting Mm -hmm. area because jury selection is one of these places where the law is actually not that bad. You cannot exclude people on the basis of race. Uh, But in many states, people of color never serve on serious felony criminal trials or capital trials because they're excluded. And the rationale for these reasons can be absurd. You people being struck because, you know, they look like the defendant or they live in a high-crime neighborhood. They had a T-shirt on. They had a T-shirt, exactly, you know. Uh, they were just uh, working on a case where the prosecutor said he struck six African Americans because they, quote, looked to be of low intelligence with nothing oh, wow. in the record to support that. Wow. And, you know, that case went through every court in the South uh, for 20 years and just got reversed a few months ago, right before the man was about to be executed. And so I think there's an opportunity to go to our prosecutors and to our courts and say, what are you doing to ensure that everybody has a right to serve on a jury? It's a simple question. Anybody can ask it, but nobody does. Mm -hmm. You can ask it of the district attorney in Baltimore. You can ask it of the district attorney in all these counties around here. Uh, You can say, well, I want to know what's the the degree of, if the county is 28%, African American, mm-hmm. tell me what the jury pool is. Mm-hmm. And if there's a disparity, I want you to fix it. These are small things, mm-hmm. but they're the kind of things that anyone can do. And I think that's got to be part of the way we start dealing with this. Uh, there are opportunities to end some of these disparities and discrimination that have not been taken up uh, by lawyers and by activists. And I think that's the challenge of our day. So I would like the people with the cards to pass some up right now um, so we can perhaps engage our audience in the time that we have left. Thank you. I hope I can read this handwriting. Um, Okay, let's take this first one. It says, ah, this is interesting. What do you recommend to a conscientious resident of Baltimore who is aware of the injustice in our system when he or she is called to serve on a jury in a drug case, for example? Don't try to get out of jury duty. <laughs> Thank you. That, that, that's the first great piece of advice that you can have. Yeah. Pe- people always, and people always call me. I don't know if people call you. Yeah, they do. How can I get out of this? What do I need to say? You used to pick juries. What do mm-hmm. I need to say to get yeah. struck? And, and it, that is always puzzling. Why yeah. would you want to get out of jury right. duty? 
it, it is it is our opportunity to be a part of a system and to fix a system in a, in a case-by-case way. And so I would say serve. Mm-hmm. Don't say you have a doctor's appointment and you got to pick up your kid at 5 and so you got to be out by 5 and <clears throat> by the way you're feeling sick a little <laughs> and you think you have surgery scheduled. Serve. Yeah. Say you can be fair if you can. If yeah. you've got things in your background that need to be disclosed, disclose them. But serve. But being conscientious doesn't make you unfair. The right. law actually assumes that the only people who are going mm-hmm. to be on juries are the conscientious people who are aware of these issues. And, things. Mm-hmm. and that's what frustrates me is that a lot of people say, oh, the system is bad. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. And they basically leave this bad system to bad people to implement right. all of these decisions mm-hmm. and things get worse. And, and so you, you're, you're, you absolutely should serve. The great burden that I have in the work that I do, and I think Renee has had this experience too, is, you know, you represent poor people, uh, you represent people of color, and you're supposed to go to trial with a presumption of innocence. Yeah. But I know when I go to the courtroom, my client is presumed guilty. Mm-hmm. If it's a young person of color, I know they're presumed guilty. Yeah. And if I don't deal with that presumption of guilt and overcome it, right. my client is going to be unfairly convicted. It would be great to have people on the jury come into the courtroom who are prepared to presume innocence, mm-hmm. to follow the law. Not something radical, not something kind of, uh, you know, un- to undermine the authority, but just to follow the law. Right. So we absolutely need those people to serve. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to skip to a question that's related to that one. It says, I've done some recent reading that suggests the American, po- uh, the American public should take back the criminal justice system. One suggestion is to advocate for jury nullification. They've been reading Paul Butler. And... <laughs> And, and, and nonviolent offenses of Roger Fairfax <laughs> and nonviolent offenses. As a public defender, I find this abandonment of law to be disheartening. However, I must admit that the idea is growing on me. I see so many blatant racial disparities in our criminal justice system that I don't think I can stomach much more. Comments on this proposal? Or you, or you can pass. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that I, 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 I have a problem with characterizing Um, thoughtful, fair, comprehensive analysis of facts as applied to a particular situation as nullification Mm -hmm. if we do something that is not expected, which is to always convict. The law is not created on this notion that you always convict the person. And so I I don't think it's nullification Mm -hmm. when you say, you know, I don't think this law has been applied fairly. I don't think you've actually established the kind of uh, uh, eliminated my doubts about the integrity of this prosecution. Uh, You know, I I don't think that uh, we should think about that kind of responsible thinking in a courtroom as nullification because that makes it seem like you're just abandoning the law. You're not following Mm -hmm. the law. The law is intended to make us uh, better, Mm -hmm. uh, to make us equal, uh, to create justice. And when the law doesn't do that, uh, then it's not the obligation of the juror to apply it in some way mm-hmm. that is unjust. And so I, don't, I actually make these arguments to juries all the time uh, about, you know, you should do the fair thing. Mm-hmm. And the fair thing under these circumstances, you know, I have a client who uh, was uh, convicted of writing three bad checks, uh, uh, one in 2001 for $98 at Christmas to buy her children some Christmas gifts. The check bounced. That's a felony in our state. Uh, two years later, she wrote another bad check uh, for $36. That check bounced. That's another felony. 
Uh, and then two years later, she did it again. She's now facing life in prison uh, with no chance of parole under our three strikes law. Uh, and I think a just jury uh, might think differently about the propriety of a conviction with those facts, and I don't think that's nullification. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to kind of broaden the analysis, but right. I do think that's important. So next question. The question is, what is the possible solution to children being prosecuted as adults? And perhaps you can give either of you, Brian. I know you argued Sullivan, and, you know, it's, it's on all of our minds, so maybe you can even talk in the context of this about the facts there as yeah. well. Well, I mean, the first thing to remember is that, you know, until the late 1980s and early 1990s, many jurisdictions did not do what we are currently doing. But in the late 80s and early 90s, part of that same wave of uh, politics of fear and anger, we started using these words that hadn't been used before, where we started calling some kids, mostly kids of color, Mm -hmm. super predators. predators. And we worked up this anxiety about Mm -hmm. them, and we lowered the minimum age for trying children as adults, and we began transferring kids into the adult system. Now, the criminologists, uh, you know, people like John DeIlio and others who, who, who pushed this, 10 years later said, you know what, I was wrong. Right. This big rise never happened. I was, that was actually inaccurate. We should do something about that. So the first thing we should do is we should uh, treat children like children. You know, you don't become an adult just because you do something stupid when you're a child. We all did things that were stupid when we were children. That's part of being a child. Uh, and so we could... Uh, basically go back to the laws that existed before that this outbreak and stop putting kids in the adult system. When we do transfer kids to the adult system, I think we have to deal with them as kids, even if they're in that adult system. And that means that you shouldn't be sentencing a 13-year-old to life in prison without parole uh, for a Mm non-homicide. But it's really kind of a reorientation. I mean, you talk about things we could do. Mm -hmm. We could sign the United States and Somalia are the only two countries in the world that are not signatories on the covenant of the rights of the child. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we won't sign it is because it bans the death penalty, life without parole, and life sentences for children. Mm -hmm. And that's the primary objection. Mm -hmm. Uh, We should sign it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's embarrassing. How can Mm -hmm. we tell anybody to to follow human rights around the world? Mm -hmm. Well, we won't do this. Mm -hmm. And so that's a small step we could do. Uh, But I think we've got to kind of completely reevaluate this hysteria that was created that children are monsters and that they're going to kill us and that they're deadly and lethal. The best thing we can do to a 13-year-old is put them in prison until they die. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's the kind of thinking that we have to reject. So, question about the effect of school zero-tolerance policies upon black youth. Uh, How do we roll back these vastly supportive policies? Can either of you talk about what those what that is, zero tolerance policies, and how they relate to the criminal justice system? I think it, it relates back to our criminalization of youth and moving police into our schools um, to enforce laws that or to enforce policies that used to be dealt with by school officials mm-hmm. and parents. Um, and I, I am sure it was a, a, a video. This was not that long ago. Um, a little girl, six, seven-year-old girl in Florida, yeah. in Florida <clears throat> who um, was misbehaving. Mm-hmm. She was admittedly misbehaving, um, but was arrested and handcuffed. And the justification was by the school officials that she was dangerous and out of control. Mm-hmm. I have a six-year-old. <laughs> they can misbehave, but they are rarely dangerous, at least not to other people. <laughs> Um, 
And and so these zero tolerance policies are about criminalizing youth, um, which are having disastrous impacts upon youth of color because youth of color are far more likely to be charged as adults than white youth for identical conduct and are far more likely to be incarcerated for identical conduct once they come into the system. Um, and I think, you know, again, I mean, that, that video is worth seeing if you it's haven't seen it. very troubling, yeah. Uh, because as a young African-American yeah. child, of course, the teachers who are watching the child misbehave are mostly white. The police right. officer that comes right. in is white. And there is this racial dynamic right. to it. Uh, but it is so tragic mm-hmm. uh, to do that. I've represented kids 10 years old yeah. who have been little girls who have been handcuffed and taken to the police station uh, and put in the police uh, in a jail cell and separated from their mothers. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to court with these kids, uh, they don't want to go. Right. They're terrified. You have to spend hours getting them comfortable. Uh, you have to hold their hand or they won't be able to kind of deal with it. You have to become this parent to them just to get mm-hmm. them through it. I, I go and say, Judge, I'd, I'd like to keep my client out of court, please. Mm-hmm. She's too young. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to make her come in here. Mm-hmm. Just to add. And the problem, and we get the cases, the charge dismissed because it was something completely crazy. But that child has been traumatized and will remain traumatized for many, many years. It will take a lot to recover from that. Just to the same mm-hmm. thing's true with that. And so this zero tolerance is not only uh, an unfortunate policy that is demonizing and denigrating these kids, but it's actually creating the kind of anger and distrust and, uh, and angst that we say we're trying to deal with. Uh, it, it just, I mean, it, it will break your heart. And so I do think valuing uh, the cost of these policies and the consequences of these policies uh, would help us think a little more healthily about how to deal with some of these issues. And the other, just a, just a footnote um, to that thought, is the, the other very destructive and I think less talked about thing that these zero tolerance policies and the criminalization of youth does is destroys parental authority. Because it places, mommy and daddy can't protect me right. anymore. Right. And so children are forced to look to their parents as not powerful mm-hmm. and, and not in authority in ways that are extremely corrosive to the parents' future ability to, to guide those children and, and, and discipline the children in productive parental ways. One of, the, yeah, yeah. One, one of the most heartbreaking things I heard recently is a school where uh, a lot, it's about 20% African American, and most of the kids of color, a lot of them are getting criminal arrests. Mm-hmm. These are middle school students, mm-hmm. sixth and seventh grade students, and they're being taken to the jail. They're actually picking up criminal records. And I talked to a mother recently. She said, if I can just get my son uh, to 15 or 16, I'm going to get him out of school so fast. I want him to drop out because I don't think school is safe for him. And Mm -hmm. she's a very thoughtful person. She she graduated from high school. used to be you could go to high school. She doesn't feel safe sending her child to the public school, not because he's going to be hurt by Mm -hmm. some other student, but because she's afraid he's going to get arrested. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a really tragic commentary on what zero tolerance has done to disempower uh, children and these communities and parents. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Can you address the economic implications of the prison complex? It's the major employer of some rural communities. Also the fact that the census counts prisoners as being residents in the community where their prisons exist, thereby driving, I'm sorry, thereby draining resources and legislative representation in these places. Can you explain that and what's going on with that? That, That's actually a, a 
dynamic that we see um, um, tragically in effect here in Maryland. So here in Maryland, the largest prison complexes are in Hagerstown and west of Hagerstown, so Hagerstown and Cumberland, which are largely rural communities, um, uh, largely majority white communities, um, and out east, so where ECI is. Um, the vast majority of inmates in the state come from a handful of zip codes in Baltimore City. And so what is happening is citizens are being pulled out of Baltimore City and Prince George's County zip codes and sent out west and out east to be incarcerated. They will be, then be counted in the 2010 census in the zip codes where they reside at the time of the census. But most people who go to jail get out of jail. And so large numbers of the people who are being counted out west and out east in Maryland for the census are going to return to the zip codes in Baltimore City and Prince George's County that they were originally pulled out of, but they will not have the representation and the resources that come with large census numbers because of the places where they are being counted. So it, has a, it, it is having a horrific effect here in Maryland. And the two other features of it is, I mean, as you as the question suggests, if you build 2.3 million uh, prison cells and you invest all these billions of dollars, there is an economic disincentive uh, to reduce the prison population, which is why the Correctional Guard Association in California is the primary advocate for expanding mm -hmm. sentences and harsher punishment. Uh, and so we've got to deal with that reality. But actually, what, 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 why I'm, I'm, I'm not as hopeless about that is it's interesting a lot of these people in these rural communities are becoming correctional guards. It used to be farmers, uh, used to work in um, uh, industry, used to work in manufacturing. And if you ask these folks, uh, do you like your new job better or you, would you, did you like your old job? <laughs> it's astonishing to me the consistency with which people say they hate their new job. Mm. Because actually when you're the custodian mm -hmm. of, of people who are being warehoused and humiliated, and incarcerated for the things that they have done, it's not a very exciting or gratifying mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, prisons are, it's just as Renee was describing it, some of these guards see these same uh, in, in inequalities. In the unit. It's, a, it's a really demoralizing place mm -hmm. to spend a lot of time. Mm -hmm. It really is. Uh, people are broken. Mm -hmm. uh, people are brutalized. There are all these harshness. And it's not a great job. Mm -hmm. It really isn't. And if we actually were committed to these people in these communities, putting aside the inmates, yeah. we would create the kind of meaningful employment that actually makes you feel like the way you spend your time is valuable, mm -hmm. is enriching, it's doing something. Mm -hmm. uh, warehousing poor people because we're not willing to deal with the complexities of poverty is not so gratifying. And that's why I feel like uh, if we can create 2.3 million prison cells with billions and billions, at half of that, we can create jobs mm -hmm. that would uh, much more satisfy the interests of rural communities. And then people won't be moving there as temporary citizens <coughs> in some prison. They'll move there because it's a good place to live. Mm -hmm. uh, but until that becomes the goal, I, I think we're going to, you know, we're going to struggle. But we can do better and then employ lots and lots of people as prison guards. What are some solutions or actions that you would advocate for young black males to stay out of the criminal justice system? And please don't say don't commit crimes. Give us something else. Yeah. 
Because you've already said it doesn't matter. You may be arrested no matter what, yeah. right? So, so what are you supposed to do? Well, I, I mean, I, I talk with a, a lot of young people. Stay at home all the time? No. No. I, no I, I talk, I, first of all, you have to be smart. Mm-hmm. I, you know, this is not a time to be disconnected from information, to, to be unaware. You have to be smart. The more you know about some of these realities, the, the more capable you are of dealing with them. It's like every institution that has oppressive features. The more you understand it, the more you learn it, the more you study it, the more you get it, the more you can manage it. And you have to manage it. That's the reality of it. And so I want to talk to kids about zero tolerance. I want them to understand what that's about. I want them to understand what's, uh, what they should do and what they should not do. And I talk to kids all the time. And, and, and you know they're being pushed by this other message which says, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to end up. It's hopeless, it's hopeless, it's hopeless, it's hopeless. Mm-hmm. So go out and have some fun, right? So my young kids, I was just talking with a group of 14-year-olds, and they say, well, can the police officer uh, arrest me for listening to my radio? I says, well, no, but tell me, what are you listening to? Is it when I see the cop, I've got the cop killer CD. <laughs> and I put it in. And turn it up. And I turn it up. Loud as I can get. Loud as I can get. <laughs> and uh, I don't think you should be able to arrest me for that. And I said, well, you're, you're right. Uh, but, but I said, but why are you doing that? Are you test? You, you want to see whether you're going to be arrested? You, you don't really believe that he might arrest you without just cause? Well, let me tell you, they will arrest you without just cause. You don't have to do something wrong to be arrested. And so I don't test that. Uh, let me tell you about it. And so instead of experiencing that and becoming a victim of it, Let's understand it and think about how we're going to manage that. Now, it's not fair, it's not right, but it's smart. The other thing I tell them is that you have to be hopeful. I mean, you know, I, it seems, I mean, people don't like me to start talking about stuff like hope, but the reality is you have to be hopeful. Because mm. once you become hopeless, you become, and it's, it's been true for every institution that has all of these ugly features. Enslaved people who were hopeless were the people who died. Mm. Uh, people dealing with terrorism at the end of Jim Crow who became hopeless were the people who got lynched and hurt and killed. Uh, the people who didn't believe that we could ever do anything about apartheid and Jim Crow uh, were the ones who stayed on the side. But the ones who believed we could do something got out there and fought, got out there and took on guns and dogs and police uh, battalions with nothing in their hands. Now, that takes some hope. That's our legacy. That's our foundation. And we've got to have that to confront these problems. And so I think that that's the second component. And then the third thing is you need help. You need adults, you need lawyers, you need teachers, you need social workers, you need people who care about you, watching you and protecting you. Mm-hmm. And with those three things, we can keep young men out of, co- uh, of color out of jail at a, at more f- effectively than we have. So let me push. No, go ahead. I, 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 just, I think that the, the last part, though, is critically important for everybody in this audience to hear, that tasking 13 and 14 and 15-year-olds with fixing the problem is... Right. An enormous burden. Mm-hmm. And so it is the adults who understand the problems and who can be a part of their lives that are a critical component of fixing the problem and keeping mm-hmm. kids out of jail. Um, th- th- we need to be doing a better job of talking to our youth. We need to be doing a better job of not throwing our hands up and of not abdicating responsibility to others. Mm-hmm. And we need to be doing a better job of mentoring young people, mm-hmm. not you know, because through some 
program at your job, you get to talk once a week to college students, right? Those aren't the kids that need to be hearing it. It's the 10 and 11 and 12-year-olds who have not yet come into the system that need to be hearing it, that every single one of us needs to be talking to and has a responsibility to talk to. Because it's not their problem. It's going to be our problem. And so we need to fix it. Can I just say one more thing about that? I, mm-hmm. I, I just couldn't agree with that more. The, one of the things that I find most heartbreaking about my work is I start representing a 13 and 14 year old. And it's amazing to me how after five or six visits, there's all of this enthusiasm this person has. And, you know, they're like, I love you. Yep. And I'm like, I love you back. And there's all this excitement. There are all yep. these things they want to be. Well, I didn't think I... And there's all of this dynamism coming from just mm-hmm. this kind of... Yep. And it just breaks my heart that it took so little uh, to yep. create mm-hmm. so much hope and opportunity mm-hmm. for someone. Uh, and now we're dealing... And, it, and it's all wonderful, exciting, except my client is sentenced to life without parole. Right. Mm-hmm. We've got a, a life... And so I, I can't... Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. Just a little bit of time... Mm-hmm. In these communities, we've got kids in juvenile detention facilities uh, right now. We can get you the names of them. Somebody mm-hmm. in here can do that. Mm-hmm. Each one of them coming Easily. out uh, would be transformed yep. if two people in this room just said, you know what, I'm going to be available for you. Mm-hmm. Just be available for mm-hmm. you. I know it seems a little hokey, but that's the kind of uh, mentoring that yep. I think is transformative. And I'm going to come back to that one at the very end. I asked both of you to come up with at least one practical thing that each person out here can do. That's one of them for sure. I want to push on this one a little bit because that was the example you gave, Brian, and, and all this about being mentoring, it's absolutely so true. But the example you gave about telling them, you know, turn down cop killer, that's an easy one. We can all say, look, don't bait them. Pull up the pants. Well, that's what I'm about to ask, okay? I mean, do we go so far as to say, okay, you know, I know that's your creative thing, but you, you know what? You can't dress like that because the personal thing, ways that you like to express yourself, it's going to make them think you're I know that's wrong, but too bad you can't do it because it's going to make the police stop you. And it's almost sort of like saying, you know, it's your, do we do that because it's practical? I mean, I know we don't like I can agree. We want people to pull up the pants for different reasons because they're just stupid to have your pants down. So let's not use that example. <laughs> but other things, you know, like dressing a certain way or, I mean, or, or does that matter? I mean, I suppose police officers, I hear people, you know, I, I get stopped in stores dressed like this. I mean, so, I mean, it could happen if you're dressed professionally or whatever. But obviously, if you're dressed a certain way, hanging out in a certain area, driving a certain kind of car, that kind of thing, do we tell them, change your behavior because these people are racist and they're going to profile you if you don't do that? Do we go that far? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, because? I, because saying, turn down the music, pull up your pants, turn your hat around, mm-hmm. stop slouching, present yourself well, does not mean ignore the discrimination and the bias and the unfairness of the system. Right? They are two separate questions. Mm-hmm. And as a, maybe it's just my mom hat, <laughs> and I'll admit that, I have got two young black men mm-hmm. and it, that, that I intend to raise to manhood with my husband. And if them presenting is going to increase their chances mm-hmm. of survival, that is my job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And, and so, you know, I'm all about First Amendment and oh, free no, expression, right. and they can look however they want to look in our backyard. <laughs> I agree with that because in some ways, I mean, what would we say to our biological children? How do we expect them to be? I don't think that we should have different rules for the kids we really, really, really care about who are our own and another set of rules for those other people's kids. Because if we love these kids, if we love this community, Mm -hmm. then we're going to care about them the same way. And so, no, I don't want my uh, uh, kids or anybody that's connected to me drawing attention to themselves in ways that's going to increase the likelihood of their victimization of discrimination. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk to them about why that's unfair and all that other kind of stuff. There are a lot of things about growing up that have those dynamics in them. And and, and so I don't think uh, we have a different set of rules for the other kids, but our own rules for the kids that we are nurturing, that we are responsible for. I'd like us to be responsible for more of our community, Mm -hmm. uh, for, for us to feel this sense of obligation to all of the kids in our community, and if we do that, then we're going to say, "I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm getting there." We've talked about this, uh, you know. I, I, I don't mind talking, but I'll say, it. "I'm 50," right? and I'm, I, you know, I, you know, I get to the, you, some, the older you get, the more liberties you can take. At least that's what I think. Mm-hmm. When you I, get 53, with other people's kids, really Because even now, I haven't, you know, I, I'm, quite, I'm almost at the point where, when I go into McDonald's. And I see these young kids who are beautiful, but they're acting in ways that are just not smart. Mm-hmm. They're not respectful. Mm-hmm. They're just. They, I've already started saying, "I'm sorry, y'all," but I got mm-hmm. to say something. I, you know, all this loud cussing and carrying on—that's not good. Mm-hmm. I, I know you've got some beautiful things inside you, and I know that you want to be a beautiful person. So tell me something beautiful, please. Mm-hmm. You've been cussing, and I want to see something. I know that it's there. And have these conversations. You what know. kind of reaction do you? Well, you know, usually it's yeah. like, you know, who are you? Some people are afraid to do it. Well, I know. But you'd but you be know, surprised but, but you'd be at surprised. how positive the reaction is. Okay. That's exactly right. I told a group of kids, I was walking down the street with my kid, and there was a group of, of young black men walking in front of us, and they were cussing up a storm. Right. And just back and forth. And I said, I'm sorry, young brothers, I'm not your mom, but could you please tone it down? I've got my kids with me. Could you just show a little bit more respect? And the react. I'm sorry, Ma- I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. Oh, you sound just like my mama. And they right. hiked up the pants right. and they right. turned around. Right. 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 No, it's funny how a lot of a lot of kids want somebody to care. Yes. Sure. They're doing all that yep. because they dare anybody to care yep. enough about. When I said that to these young kids, you said, I don't think I'm that beautiful. I said, oh, yeah, you are. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you are. And we had this conversation. It's funny. You're there 20 minutes and all of a sudden they start telling you all these things. At the end of it, we were hunking. You know, and that's, I mean, it's, it's, it seems silly, but in some ways, uh, you know, we have that uh, responsibility. You know, I mean, a lot, I mean, I grew up in one of these communities where it didn't have to be your grandmother right. that would grab you by right. the arm. Oh, yeah. Right. Anybody's grandmother could grab you by the arm mm-hmm. and uh, reorient you uh, to your environment. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I, you know, some of that stuff. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not advocates of all of the old school ways because you know they'd go say, "Go get me a branch off the right. tree, uh, a trunk off the tree, not a little, not a little twig," and you know, beat you to within an inch of your life. I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about this sense of investment uh, that we care. Uh, you know, my clients who do best are the ones who think I really care about them. Mm-hmm. They don't get high. They don't these because they know it matters to me. Mm-hmm. And if I can create this sense that I care about them, then they're going to care about me. 
Sure. And that dynamic is going to get us both through some things that are going to be mm-hmm. hard and difficult. Well, that's true for every child in this community. Mm-hmm. As long as it comes from that place of caring Absolutely. and respect. That's exactly and right. And is not viewed just as a, another admonition from another adult who doesn't care about them, but instead cares about the adult creating a better environment for themselves. That, that's right. Mm-hmm. There's a yeah. difference between care yep. and control. Right. And a lot of what our right. criminal justice policy it's is about, about just controlling right. this population right. with no concern about what it does to them and their right. well-being and their development. Right. Uh, caring is always involving some, some sense of control, some right. sense of what's going to happen, but it's rooted in your development, right. your evolution, your success, <laughs> your, your, your growth, mm-hmm. and, and that, mm-hmm. that instinct and distinction right. I think is critical. So, Why do white people protest when black people are unjustly or something. If white people protest unjust killing of black people, it would stop. Why don't they do that? I think. Well, I, okay, in all fairness to people who. I, 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 I know, and it and it's fine. You don't want to quickly well, answer that mean, because we have very little yeah, time. Just a, but but yeah, well, we, 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 we can't be too sort of binomial. But there are plenty of white people mm-hmm. who are fighting and protesting. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't think that it's just us because just like there are people of color who are contributing to these problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are plenty of people. You know, I, we recruit student folks to come down and work with us. I mean, one thing for us as law professors mm-hmm. that I know uh, I have some support from here is disheartening to see uh, the way in which uh, these opportunities to do this, to create some of these justice issues, are not embraced by, by someone within students. our own community. Uh, we got, but, all right, so, so we have plenty of people who get it and who come to respond to it. We don't have the majority of people doing it. But I don't think we should think that it's just, it's, it's, it, we only need a few white people to do this. We've got plenty no, of people. We, need a lot of white people. we absolutely do. But that's going to come. We are outraged with it, but they, I will never see the outrage from Okay, brother. Thank you. We've gotten your answer and you're out of turn. So yeah. we, got, we have a few more minutes, seven minutes, and we're going to wrap. We have, let, we have about five minutes, and I'm insisting that we, I'm going to get to my question of how can each person. But, but there's a one question, two, two really quick questions before I get to that. One of these issues that's so important that I want you to touch on, even if just briefly. One of the questions is, where do you think the major gaps in ex-offender services are, and how can recidivism be mitigated? I just want you to just talk briefly about what are, what are we going to do and what's being done for folks who are getting out, right, who, who've got this felony conviction, who can't find a job, who, for all those reasons, end up going back in. Is there some movement on that? What kind of services are being provided? I know there's a, a reentry clinic at University of Maryland that Michael Bernard runs. I mean, what, can, what are we doing with that, that issue? Um, there, there are a lot of collateral consequences that people convicted of crimes suffer um, that they have to endure even after they have served their their term of incarceration or parole or probation, um, in, including uh, the loss of for students, the loss of federal funding for, for student loans, um, the loss of housing with regard to public housing, and, and the, the inability to find affordable housing is a significant deterrent to um, uh, successful reentry back into the community. Um, the loss of food aid, the loss of the right to vote. So there are, there are a number of different collateral consequences that negatively impact former um, former or ex-offenders. Um, and there are programs that work toward more successful reentry. So uh, like you mentioned, the clinic at the University of Maryland, the reentry of ex-offenders clinic, works with people to expunge records mm-hmm. that... Uh, that 
a criminal record can be a significant deterrent to a number of different um, paths in life. And, and so this clinic helps people to expunge records, arrest records. You know, 1,800 people a month are arrested in Baltimore and never charged with anything. That arrest sits on your record mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. can impede your ability to get jobs, mm -hmm. um, to apply for benefits. But if you can expunge that record, you can more successfully reenter. And so there are programs mm -hmm. in place to assist people with doing those sorts of things. Um, the, that clinic also worked on banning the box. So there used to be a box on all job application forms and you had to check it off to say whether or not you had been convicted of a felony mm -hmm. and it was a an automatic employers could use it as an automatic bar to employment now they've banned the box you no longer have to check off before you have qualified for the job whether or not you have a felony record only after you have been accepted for the job Mm -hmm. can the employer inquire about whether or not you have a criminal record. But it's after you've established you're already qualified to do the work. So there are a number of different programs in place to help people more successfully reenter, but much, much, much more needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's a lot more that needs to be done with regard to successful reentry. So let me ask this one before I ask the last one. Is President Obama doing enough to bring attention to the issues being discussed tonight? Oh, we can't wait. All on him. <laughs> I know y'all didn't want me to ask that, but I. <laughs> no, well, well, I, no American president, including this one, right. has made this the priority that I think it is. I mean, every elected official gets pulled into that, and I think the president has has, has experienced that same dynamic. Uh, but uh, no, he no, and, and, and but but no one has. Right. Uh, president Clinton signed the Welfare Reform Act which had the language in it that for the first time in our nation's history bans people with drug convictions, mm -hmm. just people with drug convictions, not people with murder convictions, just people with drug convictions from receiving public housing and mm -hmm. food stamps and all of these benefits. That was signed by a Democratic president. Mm -hmm. The laws of 1996 signed by the Democratic administration, Ed the Welfare Reform Act, mm -hmm. the Anti-Terrorism and Effective mm -hmm. Death Penalty yep. Act, and the Prison uh, Litigation yep. and Reform Act have devastated yep. the ability to challenge these problems that we're talking about tonight. And the same dynamics are going to continue until we stop giving up on crime and these kinds of issues as being issues too complicated, too polarizing, mm -hmm. too provocative mm -hmm. to talk about. And so this president, along with every other American president, needs to be challenged uh, to make the commitment that is necessary to confront what I think is one of the largest mm -hmm. institutional challenges in American society today, mm -hmm. uh, the overuse of incarceration. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, but we proclaim to be uh, the home of the brave and the land of the free. Mm -hmm. We cannot reconcile right. what we sing about and just imprison more and more people. It is a fundamental moral challenge of our time. And so this president, everyone uh, mm -hmm. before him, has not made it the priority that it needs to be. And, and actually, the, can the president of the United States really have, really changed the policies that are on the ground? I mean, is it really... Isn't it really the mo isn't most crime prosecuted in state yes. courts? So that leads to my last question, which is, you know, someone asked a question, what do you suggest we as private citizens do to help change this cruel system? And so that's a different way of saying, give folks out here a thought, a, a practical thing, one or two, or more if you'd like in, you know, a few minutes, 
that they can do, right? People feel helpless, they hear the statistics, and it's like nobody cares. What can an individual person do? You mentioned the, the, the reaching out, dealing with some of the root causes, which is reaching out, mentoring, and sort of preventive. But what else? I think, I, I think another thing, though, that we can do, and another thing that we as voters must do, is not allow the politics of fear mm-hmm. to be successful. Politicians use it because it works. When we are afraid of each other, we allow policies to be put in place that, like many of the criminal justice policies we've been talking about tonight, are are very damaging to our long-term existence as a community. But they wouldn't do it if it didn't work. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't do it if it didn't generate votes. That's something we can fix, so we can stop letting the politics of fear be an effective political tool. Um, you know, Willie Horton, as an ad, worked for a reason. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the whole Southern Democrat strategy of being tough on crime and liberal on everything else is effective and is employed by Democrats for a reason. Mm-hmm. So we need to force politicians to answer to those sorts of politics of fears that they are employing that are counter to what the statistics show in terms of sort of sensible criminal justice policy. I, I, have, I have three three suggestions. One is, is very similar to Renee's, which is, uh, you know, I think we should uh, begin to question uh, policymakers, uh, politicians, what are we going to do about mass incarceration? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do about the fact that we're putting too many people in prison? Mm-hmm. And make them respond to that question. Yes. Make it become something that they have to become educated about and be accountable for. That'd be number one. Number two, uh, I think that uh, we have to uh, take advantage of the opportunities we have uh, to interact with this system. And I encourage everybody to go to the criminal court in your community mm-hmm. and just sit there and watch. Mm-hmm. Monitor for a day, mm-hmm. uh, once a month, Be a witness. what's going on in court. Yep. Watch jury selection. Mm-hmm. Watch the lawyers argue. Watch the sentence. Watch who comes yep. into court. Just watch. And I guarantee you, at the end of that process, you'll have all kinds of ideas about things you should be doing in your community to help fix that problem. And if all of those things are too kind of outside yourself, here's a third one. We have a website is www.eji.org. I I right now have about 300 clients. Some of them are children who've been sentenced to life in prison without parole. Some of them are people on death row. Many of them are women who've been prosecuted because their children died and they were wrongly convicted. But all of them are very alone. And they are desperate for someone to write to them, Mm -hmm. to begin to interact with them, to become a part of their lives. And if you can't do anything else but just become a pen pal to somebody, it can be the kind of mentoring and transformative thing. And we'll help you do it. If you just write that, just go to that website, say, I want to be a pen pal to somebody in jail or prison, we will connect you to someone. We'll even give you some options. I want a child. I want somebody on death row. I want whatever. And we'll create that opportunity for you to begin uh, to interact with people who are very marginalized, very isolated, and very alienated. Now, those are three ideas. The other thing you can do, though, is every school community has a point person for volunteer opportunities, for mentoring opportunities. You can contact your local high school. You can contact your local elementary school, your local middle school, and find out what the opportunities are to volunteer with those kids. And it does not take a lot. 
you once a week mm-hmm. agree to take or once a month agree to take a kid to the movies. I mean, it, it really just creating the opportunity for a child to have another adult who can provide them with productive guidance is remarkably effective. And I'm going to step out of my moderating role and add one. The next time you have a prosecutor election in your community, ask the people running for office, and even if they're running unopposed, which they often do, the same question Renee mentioned earlier, what are you going, what are your charging policies and your plea bargaining policies, and what are you going to do to reduce the racial disparities in our criminal justice? They probably drop, fall, faint, drop dead because no one ever asked them any questions, but they're the most powerful people in the system, so you should question them. Please join me in thanking Professor Renee Hutchins and Professor Brian Stevenson for this great conversation.